This is an audio recording of a talk by Douglas Harding in Montreal, Canada, in February 1990. Well, it's a, it's a, a great pleasure, a joy to be in Montreal for the second time in my life, and to for this city to be the conclusion of a three-month tour of doing workshops, and this lo looks like being the best one of all. Thank you very much for coming tonight. Lovely to be with you. And what I have to share with you tonight is something embarrassingly simple. Quite embarrassingly obvious and simple. And, I would add, incredibly precious. <clears throat> well, what, what is it all about? Um, it's about really being honest about what we are for ourselves. You see, all of us have joined a club called the Human Club, and we paid a very high subscription for joining this very worthwhile club. A huge subscription. And I would say it's much too big a subscription. And I'm going to suggest that tonight we should be better members of the Human Club if we withdraw secretly our subscription. And what is that subscription? It is that we are what we look like. Now, you've got what Douglas looks like, haven't you? You're the ones uh, with, with the white beard now. You've got what Douglas looks like. And that's your problem, and you're welcome to it. And I've got what I am here. And what I am here is nothing like that. And I mean in the most simple sense, I am not what I look like. I am what I am here at a distance of zero inches or feet from myself. And then I find that I'm exact opposite of what my parents and my teachers and my brothers and my sisters, bless their hearts, they did their best. But I'm the exact opposite of what they told me I was. For instance, they told me I was in a kind of meat pool here. And that there was a lump here. A solid lump that I was living out of. A kind of meat pool with two windows in it. Two little windows and a solid lump here. What are you looking at me out of now? That is the big question. I'm going to tell you what I'm looking at you out of, and not for you to believe, but for you to check whether you are in the same strange condition as me. Because, you see, it's rather important uh, to live our lives sensibly, lovingly, practically, with energy, with inspiration, authentically, it is rather important to come from the place we are coming from, to be our authentic selves, to get 
what is the centre of our world, to get that right. And if the centre is wrong, the whole is wrong. The apple is only as good as its core. And I would say with great respect to you, if you're like me at all, you've been sold something that is pretty, well, pretty bad, a pretty bad bargain. You have been told, and you have bought into this, we all do, we all have to, bought into this fiction that you are what you look like. And you look in the mirror, and you see what other people see, don't you? And if you want to see what they're getting, you look in the mirror. And that's certainly what they're getting. But are you like that? And I swear to you, I promise to you, that when I go and look in my mirror after this occasion, I look in my mirror and I will say with all my heart, thank God I'm not like that. <laughs> and I look in my mirror to see what I'm not like. And you know it's rather important, rather important to get this right. Because, you see, I'm, uh, they tell me, 81. 81, I, I, you know, that's what they tell me, 81. And what I see in that mirror has been growing older and more decayed and more decrepit for no less than 81 years. And it's on, if, if I'm that, I've had it, haven't I? I've had it. It's a killer. And here am I, that guy in the mirror, sitting in death row, sentence having been pronounced ages ago, just waiting for the date of execution, because that is a perisher. That one in the mirror that I see there is a perisher. And the one you're looking at now, Douglas Harding from England, the one you're receiving there is obviously on the way out. It obviously uh, hasn't got an awful lot longer. But you see, thank God I'm not like that here. And here is different. And what I'm looking out of is the exact opposite of what you're getting. Not the exact opposite. And I'm going to share with you tonight this vision of who you really are and I really am. And my gosh, is it refreshing. Is it obvious? It's totally obvious. You know, we don't know what our business is until we see who we are. And we think that what we're looking at that way is plain and obvious, but we don't really see what's out there. We only glimpse it because it's so darn complicated. But when we turn round our attention, 180 degrees, and look at what we're looking out of, and that's what we're all going to do tonight, and we're all going to get the message, why then you see how different you are from what you look like. Um, at the back row there, can you hear me? Is it coming across all right? Good. So we have tonight uh, uh, three things really. We have uh, this preliminary talk, which is necessary, but it's all kind of froth and doesn't matter much. You, don't, you can forget it, it doesn't matter a lot. Then we have what really is the nitty-gritty 
of this evening a few very, very simple experiments for looking to see what we really, really are in our own experience, right where we are, what we're looking out of, what we are that naught inches from ourselves, our true nature, our reality, not our appearance. And that's the second part of this evening, and that's what it's all about. It's about these experiments. And you are the authority. And don't believe a thing Douglas tells you. Test it. Tonight we're going to test what I suggest. And what you find, I respect. I say you are the authority on one thing and one thing only. You're the total, final authority on that thing. And what is it? It's what you are for yourself, what you're looking out of, what you really, really, really are at this moment. When you don't think about it, when you don't believe what anybody tells you, but you dare to be your own authority and tell the world. And you have the courage, you have the guts to say, nobody's going to tell me what I am but me, because nobody is in a position to be me except me. Nobody has entree to the place where you are except you. Therefore, you be your own authority. I am my own authority. And for that matter, I swear to you, cross my heart, you know I'm not kidding. I swear to you that here is the exact opposite of what you're seeing. And we're going to do little experiments here to check whether that is true or not, for you. And everybody will get it. Everybody will get it who actually does the experiments. You have to do them, and you have to take them seriously. And they're not embarrassing, but I have to ask you to do them. And of course, this is in North America, where everybody does these things. I mean, you're, you're, you're not like those stuffy people in Europe, are you? Who, who don't do things, who don't sit around and talk, here you do things. So you will all do the experiments because you have enterprise. Not like us, Europe, the people in Europe who are kind of rather tired of a lot. So you will do the experiments on Patria. And you need to. Because it's a matter of life and death to do them, you know. Literally. A matter of life and death. And one of the reasons why I want to know who I am before I die is that I really want to see whether I am perishable or not. See? Well, I mean, you look, you've got a gadget in the kitchen. I mean, one of the things you really want to know is whether it's perishable or not. Is it made of stainless steel? Is it made of crockery? Is it made of plastic? Well, what are you made of? What are you made of? There's a nursery rhyme, isn't there? A little poem from our childhood. What are little girls made of? Sugar and spice, north and tonight, is it? And what are the boys made of? Well, what's it? Snails, suckers and snails and puppy dog turns. All right, well, what are you made of? You know, um, there's something I really like, many things I really like in that great poem of Dante Alighieri, the Divine Comedy. Uh, Beatrice, the heroine, of that wonderful poem uh, was um, 
venturing into one of the outer circles of hell, and there are flames around. And uh, Beatrice uh, looked like being scorched a bit, you know. And Beatrice said, in uh, roughly, my own translation, rough translation, said, never mind about that. Those, those flames cannot touch me. I am made of God. Those flames cannot touch me. I am made of God. Now, what are you made of? You know, there's been a tradition called the perennial philosophy um, over the last two and a half thousand years, which has said something about you personally. About you personally. And what is this tradition? What is the story? It is that you really are not a product of the world. You are not a passing, fleeting product of the world. You are nearer to you than all else. The soul of your soul, the heart of your heart, the nature of your nature is the origin of the world. And that sitting there, heavily disguised, but very heavily disguised, is a source of the world. The way you are is the world's source. And this is too splendid, isn't it, to bear, really. You know, we will listen to and we will follow and we'll go along with people who tell us what rotten a lot we are, how horrible we are, how miserable, how wretched. We love to hear that. What is not really so acceptable, strangely enough, is our splendor. But the great ones have said it. The great ones have said it. You know, I mean, you, 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 what about Shakespeare? Now, now, Shakespeare, you would think, now he got his feet on the ground. Shakespeare's a big man, a wide man, a man who is not going to pull our legs, he's just serious uh, about these matters. A man we can trust here when he speaks from the heart. And what does he say in Measure for Measure? He talks about man there. He says, man, Proud man, dressed in a little brief authority, most ignorant of what is most assured, his glassy essence, like an angry ape, plays such fantastic tricks before high heaven as make the angels weep. Well, what did he mean by our glassy essence? He meant our transparency, our transparency, our openness. Are you looking out of transparency now, or are you looking at me out of opacity, solidity, out of a meat ball, a solid lump of stuff, or are you looking at me out of this wonderful wide open transparency? You know, I can't tell you what you're looking at me out of now. Are you looking at me out of an eight-inch bone box full of stuff? Are you in the dark there and the wet, sticky goo of a box 
a back stuck all over with hair? Or are you looking at me out of as this wonderful thing that Shakespeare talks about? Your glassy essence. Now, you know, you can see, I can't tell you what you're looking at me out of. And it's a matter of life and death to get this right. It's also fun. It's also energizing. And you know, it's so silly, isn't it? It's so feeble to live and to die and take everybody's word who, about who's living and dying except the one who is doing just that. Don't take anybody's word. Don't take Douglas's word for it. Be your own authority tonight about who you really, really are, where you're coming from, what you're looking out for. And I swear to you that you will agree with Shakespeare that you really are transparent where you are. And you might even go on with Shakespeare and say that if I don't find my glassy essence, I'm in terrible danger of behaving like an angry ape. That's a bad thing to behave like. Very unfair to apes, actually. Very unfair to apes. But you, you get Shakespeare's meaning. You've got a clear choice, a simple choice. Shall we take everybody's word for, our, for what we really are? And put where we are this opacity and solidity, the box, this bunged up meatball here. Shall we take everybody's word for that? Shall we look in the mirror and see the meatball and take the meatball from the mirror where it belongs and put it here, you see? Or shall we leave it in the mirror and say, thank God I'm not like that? Not here, I'm not. Unfortunately, we don't have enough mirrors to go round. Tomorrow, I hope we will have, when we do our workshop. But you can, you can go home from here and look in the mirror and see the difference between what's on the far side of the glass, namely that uh, familiar head there, and what's on the near side of the glass, your side of the glass, where I suggest you are transparent and you're as wide open as the world. And your very nature is to be wide open. Talk about glasnos. Each one of us is, is glasnosed on, you know, on high, walking around with a pair of hind legs. Glasnosed, open, busted, surely busted, wide open to the world. Aren't you busted, wide open to the world now? So this is our second uh, thing. We're going to have a look at this. And just one or two more reasons why we should have a look. You see, it's my experience that hallucinating, and it is hallucination, hallucinating a box here, a thing here, right here, instead of leaving it where it is out there in the mirror and, and in you, hallucinating this thing here makes me so damn tired. I've no energy left. It really is sick, and it's very tiring to live from a lie, from a pack of lies. And it's so energizing when we don't do that, and we, we, we allow our faces to go where they belong, in other people, in the mirror. Let them go where they want to go. Don't hang on to them. 
And every mum here, and most of the dads, know that when we were little, we were saved, and we did it right. And no mum will, will disagree with me when I say that every child of two or three that looks in the mirror is too sensible to say that's me. Too insane to say that's me. Well, first of all, the darn thing is all that distance away. It's about four feet away. And you don't look at things four feet away and say that's me. I don't say that's me. Well, it's too far away. And the second thing is, it's the wrong way round. You see, that one of them, I'm looking in that direction, and that guy in the mirror looking in this direction. It's the wrong way round. It was so different. I mean, it's so small, that one in the mirror. And the baby, that little baby in front of me, darling baby there. Well, see, that baby's doing it right. Baby looks, looks to us like a very tiny baby. You think the baby for itself is a tiny baby. The baby is the wise of the world. And then we, to join the human race, we get shrunk in the wash. We do, you see. Because the club we belong to has got very limited accommodation. We can't take big people. The club can't take big people. They only take little guys, you see. So we get, have to get shrunk to get in this club. And if we are born immense. We are born as wide as wide world and wider. Every mum knows this. And then they kept saying to that little baby and that little boy or girl growing up, that's you in the mirror, dear. That's you in the mirror, dear. It took months and years and tears to say, yes, that's me. But that's where we, you know, we came in as the big one. And we got shrunk into being the little one. And it's very painful, and it's very sad, and it's very sleepy, and it's very tiring, and it's a killer. And it's not true. And we're here this evening to test whether what I'm saying is nonsense or whether it is true. And the experiments will tell us. And we move on almost immediately to do that. But I would say, well, what are the reasons for doing this? Well, one of the reasons I've already uh, touched on, and that is, for the last two and a half thousand years, the great ones of our species have been telling us that we aren't what we look like. They've been telling us that nearer to us than all else is the origin of the world. Take another great poet, or uh, a great poet, yes, Tennyson. Not Shakespeare this time, but Tennyson. He said, nearer is he than breathing, closer than hands and feet. Nowadays we should say she, perhaps. Nearer is she than breathing, or it, I don't mind. The great poets have said it, the great teachers have said it, that, that God, kingdom of heaven, reality, Atman Brahma, the Buddha nature, is nearer to us than all else, central to our life, right where we are. And I say the most obvious thing in the whole world. And we don't know what obviousness is until we see who we are. All we've got to do is look in the right place. And the reason we miss it is we look everywhere but in the right place. If you want to, you know, if you want to find something, there's nothing like looking for it. And there's nothing like looking for it in the right place. 
and you have to turn your attention round 180 degrees and look at what you're looking out of to see what you're, that you're looking out of this immense clarity and not out of a meatball at all. And um, so uh, these ones have said it. Now it's worth two hours or an hour and a half of our valuable time to see whether they've been pulling our legs and whether they've been having us on, you know, taking us for a ride, selling us down the river. It's worth spending two hours to check out whether these great ones, they have been the great ones in all the great religions, having been telling us the truth. I used to teach comparative religion once. The thing that struck me about it was that fundamentally the great, the really great teachers of the great religions said one thing, one thing, and that is you're not what you look like. You look like a human being and indeed you are at six feet a human being. But right where you are, the distance of no feet, at your core, your heart, you are the eternal reality behind the world. Can we bear this splendor? Can we bear it? Well, I think if we have any kindness to ourselves, if we have any compassion for ourselves, if we have any enterprise, if we want some energy, if we want some fun, if we want to love one another, because this is all about love, really. If we want to love one another, let's be truthful. Let's be truthful. Now, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of a Jewish girl uh, whose name I forget, not Anne Frank, uh, but another one who was interned in Amsterdam during the war. And uh, she died in Auschwitz. I can't even remember her name now, but an Israeli friend of mine translated some of her diary for me. And she said three things in this diary. And the first thing she said is that to find joy, to find, find happiness, to find what I need in life, the one thing I need, and that is to be brutally honest. Brutal honesty is the essential thing. Truthfulness. Not nice feelings, not mystical experience, not psychological expertise, but simple, brutal honesty. And the second thing she said, and remember she died in Auschwitz, she said, in the evening, in the evening, I walk by the wire, and life is beautiful. Life is great, life is grand. And the third thing she said was, said was, the reason for the grandeur, the reason for the peace, was that nearer to her than all else was God himself. Now, surely we can emulate this honesty and just for the rest of this evening be brutally honest about ourselves, and then whatever kind of Auschwitz or some place we're in, perhaps, hardly as, uh, hardly as devastating as that place, uh, why, surely in that very place where we find ourselves, 
we can say the great, the great, life is really great and a beautiful because of who we really, 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 really are. So those are some of the reasons for doing the experiments. The experiments won't take us very, very long. Every one of them gives us the same message, but they have to be done. They have to be done without looking at me, that you have to look at what I'm asking you to look at, and then uh, we shall have 20 minutes or quarter an hour for questions. But perhaps just before we do the experiments, I'd like to just say a word about the practicality of what we're on about tonight. This is not theory. This is about practice. You see, living from a pack of lies, and it is a pack of lies to say I am what I look like, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't make for love. It doesn't make for ease. It doesn't make for inspiration. It doesn't make for efficiency in any respect. And it's a killer. And it is practical to see who we really, really are. And it's extremely impractical, unpractical to live and die with, without ever bothering to check out through one's very self who and what one really, really is. I found in my 81 years, you know, uh, through grave mistakes and through Douglas being such an incredible mess, thank God he was, that I was directed back, you know, to my true source. But I have learned, I've learned, I promise you, how practical this is, how it works. Above all, how it works in personal relationships. Because, you know, personal relationships are founded according to the ethos of our time, indeed, of all the human, of all human history, personal relationships are based on a kind of symmetry called confrontation, like that. Confrontation. There's a break here in the recording between the first side of the tape and the second. And it's always face to face. And you've never confronted anybody. It's not like this. It's like that. And that you're busted wide open for the face in front of you. Look, look at Douglas now. Is there anything, is there anything in the way of Douglas's face? Have you put anything in the way? Aren't you, isn't this your face now? The only face you've got, and I have what, 120 faces, I've lost one, I've gained 120, good business, good trading. Don't we trade faces? All of us trade faces. We're busted wide open for one another. And you know, how can we love one another? How can we relate to one another in love if we put here a fiction, you know, for keeping other people out with? I say, I meet someone, I say, keep out, I've got one. But I haven't. There's nothing in your way, I promise. I swear to you, there's nothing in your way here. And I have your face now, for which I'm terribly grateful. And it takes years off me. Wonderful. Delightful. So we're going to do the experiments now. They'll be few in number, but they have to be done really carefully.
and uh, uh, they're very, very simple. And uh, the, the first one is, this is the one you see that doesn't need this. <laughs> it's the one who's living it, you see. A dear little boy, if it is a little boy, is just living from this. Really, I mean that. That one, that, one, that little baby is, is immense, full of the sea. Well, you know, I, I suppose if you were to go around the streets of Montreal now and ask everybody, take a vote on it, in your own experience now, are you looking at me out of two eyes? Two, two eyes. In your own experience. I think you should get about 98% agreement, wouldn't you? Two eyes. We're all sure that we're looking at the world out of two eyes. Two. Two. Two small apertures in a meat ball. Two. And if we're wrong, you see, about these simple things, look, we really have to be right about the simple, basic, central thing. How can we go on and be sophisticated and complicated and philosophical and psychological and, and you know, live together happily and, and so forth if we lie about this simple foundation thing? A building is only as good as its foundation, and this is foundation stuff. What are you looking out of now? Are you looking at me out of two windows? Now, those of you who have glasses, uh, will you take them off and hold them like that out there? And those of you who don't have glasses, will you make up a pair the way I'm doing and put them together like that and, and, and uh, uh, get them as near as you can to a that's right, to a pair of glasses. And um, hold them at arm's length, open eyes, and don't look at me, but look at those two apertures or lenses. Well, somebody thinks you've got two eyes. You're optician, I guess. Now, very slowly, and with great attention, please put them on. Very slowly, with attention, put them on. And when you've got them on, drop your hand. Is anyone here look, still looking at me out of two, two, in their own experience? One, isn't it? And if you would very kindly look at the ceiling and if you could just, without smiting your neighbour too severely, just outline the extent of this great eye of yours, EYE of yours, this field of vision. You see, it's immense, isn't it? And it has no frame. It has no frame. You know, there was a teacher, there was a teacher who said three things, and he said, um, you will never find the kingdom of heaven 
until you become like a little child. Also, he talked about the kingdom of heaven being within you, within you. And the third thing he talked about was your eye being single. And he said, if your eye be single, your whole body shall be full of light, having no place dark. It's not true. It's exactly true. If your eye is single and your body is filled with light, more or less like Shakespeare said, and you know you don't have to go to Tibet, you don't have to go to Japan or Thailand or Mexico to find your third eye. Did you ever look out of anything else but this immense window? And you know, when you do that, you come home to who you are, because you are now without any boundaries, aren't you? Because this, this great eye that you're looking out of has no frame, does it? It has no frame. It's frameless, and it's infinite. And it's what you are, isn't it? You're looking at the world out of yourself, out of your true nature, out of your immensity, out of your imperishability. Because what you're looking at me out of now, instead of two little peepholes in a meatball, is this huge space without boundaries, where nothing there to perish, is there? Now, all you take into this great space that you are is perishing. Stars perish, galaxies perish, planets perish, churches perish, people perish. What you're looking out of this huge, speckless, frameless immensity. This is imperishable, isn't it? What you see in the mirror is perishing past. What's your side of the glass is imperishable because it is speckless. And it's immense, isn't it? Well, now let's do our second experiment. Our second experiment with equal care. With equal care. And uh, it does mean you have to point. You have to use this finger and point. And if you will do this, I'd be most grateful. And don't look at me pointing. Look at what your finger is pointing at. And do remember, it's a matter of life and death to get this right. But if you get it right, you'll find that you are imperishable. And that's worth finding out, isn't it? So, if you will point to the ceiling of this church, and look at your finger, and you see it pointing at a ceiling. And a ceiling perish, and that ceiling soon won't be there. Well, I mean, you know, in a reasonable time, 100 years, 200 years, it won't be there. It's pointing at something that's perishable. Now, bring your finger down and point to a wall, or something like that, and you see that wall is perishing. Now, I, I, I sorry to have to say this, now point at another perishing thing, namely Douglas. You see, Douglas is perishing fast. 
isn't it? God gives us perishing. Now I'm pointing at you perishers too. And you're all perishing, aren't you? But all the people I can see here look pretty perishable to me. And you're pointing at a perishable old Douglas. Now bring your finger down now and point uh, to your own feet. And you really have to look at them. Don't look at me, but look at your feet. And I guess your feet are going to perish too. You know, and it's all part of the perishing world. Your feet are part of the perishing world. So you've got your finger, space, feet, perishing. Now point at your legs, what you can see of them. And then you've got a finger, you've got space, and you've got perishing legs. And now point your tummy, suitably apparelled. So you have finger, space, perishing tummy. All that perishes. And it's very limited. It's very small, very limited, and it's perishing. And don't look at me. Look at your finger pointing at a perishable tummy. Now bring your finger further up and point at your chest. Also perishing. And now point to what's above your chest. Point to what you're looking out of now. And what is your finger pointing at now? Isn't it pointing at endless, endless, boundless space? At nothing whatever but room for the whole perishing world to occur in. Isn't that what your finger's pointing at? Please do, do point, do point. I'm doing it. I'm not looking to see whether you're doing it. I'm trusting you. Cross my heart. I'm trusting you to do this. For me, please. Look at your finger, but primarily look at what your finger's pointing at. Is it, is it pointing at a meatball? Is it pointing at something as small and opaque? Or is it pointing at boundless? capacity. In fact, in fact, at your single eye, which has no frame. You're the authority. I'm asking, I'm not telling you. This is what Zen calls your original face, not your acquired face. It's what you really, really are. And I say it is a face that will never perish. Ever. Now, uh, how does time go? Half past eight, yes. Well, <clears throat> there are two objections which uh, have been occurring to the uh, more critical friends here. Two objections which I shall try to answer. And the first one is, well, this is maybe very uplifting, but it's very untrue, you see. It's very untrue. That, uh, well, well, I, true, I don't see my face, but it really is here. And what Douglas is talking about may be uplifting, but it's just it's unscientific. So let's answer that one. For the more critical members of my 
distinguish all audience yes. Well, I swear to you, cross my heart, I swear to you there's nothing here in your way. This is absolutely clear of everything except you. There's no obstruction. There's nothing here of what you can see and what you call that as a space. It doesn't belong here. I can't find it here. I only find you here. And this is just space for you here. And you say, come off it. There is something here. I say, all right. If you say something here, come and see. And on your way up to me, taking photographs all the way, now you, you my friend there, with your dark beard there, a smiling, lovely face there. If you were to take, want to take a photograph of Douglas now, you'd take it from there, wouldn't you? And about here, you'd get a photograph just of just Douglas's face, wouldn't you? Just his face, which is where I'll find it in the mirror. Now you bring the camera nearer, and you get a photograph of a patch of, well, perhaps an eye or a nose. And then you start fitting sophisticated lenses. Perhaps you um, use an electronic, electron microscope as well as an optical microscope. And your story now is, as you approach, it's of tissues and cells, and large protein molecules, DNA and all that, and then smaller molecules and atoms. And as you come in, it's all being stripped away, you see. All the onion is being peeled, and you're coming to a place where there's almost nothing left, except, you know, the, the stuff that the physicists talk about. Kind of ambient energies that can't be defined or located or pinned down and all that. Tactically, no, nothing or no thing. I complete the story and say, here is a where nothingness. And it makes sense scientifically. Is it verifiable scientifically? In other words, what you got to, you lose. I don't care what it is, you got to a book. In order to read the book, you have it there. You got to a book and you can't read the book. The book is gone. So what you go up to, you lose, and you go all, there's one thing, you go all the way up to always, and that is your face. And your face, then, is the face of the wide world and the imperishable face of God. As it says in the Quran, everything perishes but his face. It also says in the Quran, man is like a mirage in the desert. When you go up to him, you lose him. And where you thought there was a man, there you find God. I repeat that. Man is like a mirage in the desert. When you go up to him, you lose him. And where you thought there was a man, there is God. The Quran, and otherwise, well, not my favorite book. Not my favorite book, but that, that excuses all the rest for me. So I say, this is scientifically verifiable. It's not nonsense. It's not wishful thinking. It's just plain, coarse sense. Scientifically verifiable. 
And the second objection is this. All this is ter terribly, terribly visual. It's visual. And uh, <clears throat> what do, how would you show this to a blind man? Well, in, in, I've just come from uh, San Francisco, where I have a blind friend who comes always to my workshops there. And he's perfectly able to see this. And he assures me he is. And that, that he, is, he is entirely able to see what we see and what we're talking about now, this blind man. And I would, I would next experiment, and it is our final experiment. I shall describe one or two more, but this is our final experiment in this hall this evening, in this church this evening, is an experiment with closed eyes. And I'm going to ask us all, please, to close our eyes for the next five minutes and keep them closed while we do a little investigation. And it is necessary in order to carry out this experiment successfully to go by present evidence to drop, as far as we are able, memory and imagination, and go by what is given now, without thinking about it, just with that brutal honesty that that girl who died in Auschwitz talked about. My first question to you is now, on present evidence, how big are you? Do you have any boundaries now on present evidence? You know that I, EYE, that you were looking out of was as wide as the world, wasn't it? It was wide enough to contain anything that was given. Aren't you still wide enough to have no boundaries, to be really infinite? Is there at the center of your immense space now a nuclear object of human shape? Or indeed of any shape? You're the authority. These are questions. On present evidence, how tall are you? On present evidence, how many toes do you have? What toes? What toes? It's all memory, isn't it? It's all imagination at this time. Right where you are. Are you not shapeless, empty of form, without color, without form, without shape, without boundaries? On present evidence, how old are you? On present evidence, what sex are you? 
on present evidence, who are you? You know, we spent our lives building up a picture of ourselves, all sorts of acquisitions, possessions, limitations, qualifications, skills. We built up an enormous collection of stuff to identify with, to say that's me. In addition to name and job and telephone number and nationality and sex and a thousand other things, we built all this stuff up and we treasured it and lived by it and thought we couldn't manage without it. Where is it now? Where's it gone now? Is it available now? Are you able to say now on present evidence, I am this, or I am that, or I am the other? Who are you now on present evidence? What are you now? Dare, please, dare to be your own authority. Don't believe anything I'm suggesting. Dare to be your own authority and decide now without further mucking about your true identity. I'm suggesting that you cannot say I am this or I am that or I am the other now. In all honesty, there's only one thing I suggest that you can say with full seriousness and authority. And it's the most marvelous thing that anyone ever said. It's the most marvelous statement you ever made. It is the statement which ensures your eternal life, your eternal reality, your incomparable safety, what is that statement now that you can say without any doubt is true on present evidence? Isn't it I am? Because are you destroyed? Now all those identifications have slipped away. Are you destroyed? Do you have a feeling of coming to a, a strange and dangerous place? Are you angry with me for stripping you there to the core? Or on the contrary, do you feel a relief? <clears throat> do you feel a relief at, at your homecoming? Isn't I am your real name, and all the other names you have are, are temporary nicknames. Isn't I am your true name now? The name that ensures your eternal safety. 
really a hard time. And when you open your eyes, as I would ask you to do now, it's a very different guy. Isn't it simply that the scene is more decorative and your name is still that name? The name it is safe to have. I am. Well, did you feel angry with me? Did you feel disturbed? Do you feel this is a strange and terrible country? Or was it your native land? This place where your name is, I am. Well, that is the last of the experiments we're going to do. Last of the experiments we're going to do here. But I'm going to ask you to do some more for me when you go from here. And they're great fun, and they're very important, and they will go to confirm what we have briefly experienced here this evening. <clears throat> now, all of you are driving all the time in car about in cars, aren't you? You're all driving your cars around uh, the province of Quebec, Montreal, I have to be careful here, um, Yes, this is the right province, I've got that right. Quebec, yes. Um, you all drive around Quebec and um, the uh, city of Montreal. And uh, you move around the city in your car. And the city stays, behaves itself and, and, and stays quite, uh, quite strong. No St. Andreas fault, you know, no earthquakes. No commotion, or very few, or very rare. The city, the city doesn't uh, move around, does it? You travel through a fairly stable city. Oh, really? Oh, really? I'm suggesting that if you really look, if you're really interested in finding out who you are, and if the experiment we've just done means anything, you will not move around in Montreal. You see, who you really, really are is the origin of the world, is the immense space containing the world. Do you think the immense, infinite capacity that contains the world, do you think that that can rush around the city of Montreal? Of course it can't. Who you really, really are never moved an inch. It was Aristotle, wasn't it, who said, God is the unmoved mover of the world. Test this out in your car and see what is moving. And I think if you you see, when you are very little, or if you happen to be a dog in your car, or a baby in the car, you know why they enjoy going for a car ride, don't you? They enjoy seeing all those lampposts going by, and all those buildings turning and dancing. And when you were very little, you loved seeing Montreal dance. Montreal was a great big gallery. 
and the buildings were twisting and the lampposts were moving. When you were little, and then you know what happened. Montreal ground to a halt. It all got solid. It ground to a halt. And then you started moving along the streets. Now, where did all that commotion go? You know, if there's only one place where it could go, it went inside you. And you lost your tranquility. I say, let all that commotion go to where it belongs, and Montreal will dance. And the whole world will dance. Everything will be on the move in your space if you're honest about it. And the very lampposts and the trees and the buildings are preaching to you, begging you to see who you are. They're all on the move. You, you just look in your car and see who's moving, which is moving. Are you moving or is Montreal dancing? And this is such fun, you see. Endless discoveries, endless discoveries. Once you really have the guts and the enterprise and the taste for fun. Endless discoveries. Everything is upside down from what you had been told. The recording ends abruptly here.